You're listening to Season 3 of Future Ecologies. Hi folks, this is Adam, and this is the second episode of our series, Nature by Design, which is kicking off our third season. If you haven't listened to part one, then I suggest you go back and do that first, because this is very much a continuation of a conversation. Quick recap, in part one, I introduced Mendel to two mentors of mine, Eric Higgs and Oliver Kellhammer, and their ideas about designing with nature. That episode focused on some of Oliver's work, so this time around, we're going to pivot over to Eric. This is Nature by Design, part two, the path to the Wilderness Lodge. And we're back. It's as if we never left. (laughs) Uh. So when we left off with Eric, he was telling us about his involvement in helping to craft SER's definition of restoration. Which is the process of assisting the recovery of an ecosystem that's been degraded, damaged, or destroyed. SER, one more time. Society for Ecological Restoration. Nice. And the definition has held up pretty well over time. But here's the thing. Eric is no longer sure that it's the best definition for going forward. Environmental change has driven a lot of turbulence and restoration too. I mean, back in the good old days, and I'm going to say, I don't know, whatever we mean by good old days. I say that tongue in cheek. But back in the, say, the 1990s, late 1990s, early 2000s, when we had what I'd call sort of the peak of classical restoration, most restoration ecologists believe that the best target was an historical reference ecosystem. And that was it. You would design for what the system was like pre-degradation. But when you're under conditions of rapid environmental change, climate change, uh, lots of shifts in the biogeochemical balances, it's, it's not realistic, right? So you have to shift how you think about your targets. And swirling in and around this idea of restoration... There's also a bewildering range of terms and practices. And then there's, you know, ecological engineering and there's uh, green infrastructure projects and reclamation, rehabilitation, revegetation, remediation. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things which are all in some ways, you know, we can argue about (laughs) the extent to which they are, but they're all about trying to reclaim a relationship that's missing, something that's gone wrong. And of course, we live in this pretty urbanizing and, you know, anthropocenic world that we need to come to terms with. And we're coming to terms with in lots of creative ways. That's why I'm not sure that the old restoration definition is apt for where we need to go. So that's anyway, that's all the I spoke of the positive moves around the turbulence. But there's I think there's some maybe some moves that are maybe not heading in the quite the right direction. And I think Um, I've been vocal in the last couple of years about a tendency to orthodoxy and restoration. So saying, you know, ecological restoration, you know, must be, you know, within a very particular kind of box around how it looks. Very determinate historical targets, you know, the term indigenous reference ecosystems is used. 
that you have a kind of tendency towards a very high level idea of restoration that many projects can never reach. And so there's a kind of austerity about how restoration is defined that may not be going in exactly the right direction to deal with all this exuberance around people trying to come to terms with what works. Yeah, I, I really resonate with that word exuberant, I think. You can probably tell. You've been pretty exuberant this whole conversation. <laughs> yeah. I, I should clarify right now that even though Eric helped craft SER's definition, he's also in many ways a bit of a, a maverick in the field. And, and I think that's partly due to how he got into restoration in the first place. So a little bit of a memory lane. Like many Canadians, Eric grew up in a pretty industrial part of suburban Ontario. My inspiration came when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. And I had taken a course, a field course, with Robert Dorney, who was a professor of ecology and environmental planning. And he was a, this is interesting lineage. His, his work went back to Otto Leopold. He studied at the University of Wisconsin and took lectures from Otto Leopold back in the late 40s and then did all sorts of fascinating work and emerged as, a, as one of Canada's early environmental consultants and environmental planners, trained as an ecologist. And he was just, uh, he was an inveterate tinker, so he liked to mess with things. And when he saw um, all these subdivisions being developed and forests being scraped away, he thought, well, I should be salvaging those because I can, maybe there's a way I can actually begin to restore and create um, these you know, patches of biodiversity. And this was in the 70s, so it's pretty early. I remember going on a field trip as an undergraduate student, walking from the university over to this subdivision, and wondering what the heck I was doing, walking over to a subdivision, and in the midst of this sort of, you know, classic 1970s subdivision was a suburban two-story house, and in front, like it was, you know, all the gardens that we walked up the street were mown grass and maybe a birch tree and a few flowers around it. As you started to come into view was this wild front yard, and it was a miniature ecosystem that had, I don't know, 160, 170 species of vascular plants, and he had done all sorts of crazy things with it. So on one side, he dug down and put in all this drainage gravel and created this very dry, sandy system, and he had Opuntia, like prickly pear cactus growing, which was, you know, historically known in Waterloo County. And then on the other side, he, he put in a clay liner and sphagnum and then routed all of his eaves troughs, all the water drainage into that one section and created a bog and he had lots of stuff. So in this hundredth of an acre, tiny little horseshoe shaped front garden was this explosion of biodiversity and it was all native plants from the region and several which were on the then Canadian endangered species list. So. I just thought that was amazing. And so I was being steeped as a student in the mid-1970s, being steeped in the, this um, doom and gloom about degradation. And here was somebody making a tangible difference in the most unlikely place to me, right? A suburban front yard. So the first thing I did was I took this idea home to my parents in Brantford, Ontario. And I convinced them, I don't know why they let me do it, but I, I, we dug up their front yard and planted a, a garden. So I, that was sort of my earliest inspiration. So right from the start, Eric 
could see the value of regenerative human activity that wasn't necessarily what you would consider classical restoration, right? And and Robert Dorney's house kind of epitomizes that. It's like that that was never what that particular piece of land was ever like, but it contains all these elements of the natural ecology around it. It's a really rich place. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, I presume that is deeply pleasurable too, right? To live in that, to make that. Yeah. So that's part of the reason why Eric has such a broad definition of restoration mm. to encapsulate all of that exuberance. Yeah. But there's always a risk that if you make that big tent like too big, mm. you'll start to get these projects that actually don't result in ecologies that have integrity or that maybe you actually will cause damage to like in existing intact ecologies in the process of trying to create something. Mm. Like, for example, would a plantation of eucalyptus trees in California, like, it's going to sequester carbon and it's going to restore a forest canopy, but would it actually create habitat for native species? Would it maybe actually create issues for surrounding ecosystems? And and would it even be resilient in the long run, right? Right. Is yeah. that restoration? In in To fulfill certain goals, you could easily be blinded to some pretty major issues when you're taking things on an ecosystem level, right? Yeah, and maybe that's the issue, like being like a little bit too like narrowly focused on a specific kind of goal. Mm. And there's like, there's always going to be failure in restoration and that's how we learn. So it's like, I don't think that's a danger so much as like the danger is that if we aren't explicit about our goals and our motivations, then it's possible that we can get sidetracked and maybe become intoxicated with this power that we have that we can intervene in ecosystems and, and even like design them, right? <laughs> yeah, as a- You're a designer. I'm a, I'm a recovering designer. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I mean, the the risk in design is, is losing sight of that humility, right? Taking on that, that hubris of even possibly being able to preconceive all of the edge cases and potential outcomes for what you're doing, right? Like it's really an endeavor in playing God. It's been said that God made man in his own image. Others say that humans made God in their own image. Today, we're going to explore the images that we impose on the natural world and whether they drive from nature at all. Broadcasting from the unceded, shared, and asserted territories of the Wasatch, Penelicate, Belitzum, Lalem Saritaneo, and other Hulkamium speaking peoples, this is Future Ecologies. All right, so this series, Nature by Design, takes its name from a book that Eric wrote back in 2006. In the introduction, Eric weaves together a tale of two wildernesses, and we're going to take a look at both of them. Up first? What's up first? The first is Jasper National Park. Which is in the northern Canadian Rockies. In the early part of this century, 
the Dominion set aside a great region of this mountain country as a park, largest of all the national parks in Canada. And for many people, this is the kind of landscape they see when they picture wilderness, right? Like archetypical wilderness. From the fresh charm of a meadow flower to the deep wonder of a green valley and the white splendor of a distant peak. Big iconic mountain ranges, glacier-fed lakes, grizzly bears and moose and elk. Perhaps a deer, a flock of mountain sheep, or even a friendly black bear or a moose by the roadside. And endless forests. Yeah, it's like the Yosemite of Canada. It's the, the image of pristine wilderness. Exactly. From the white glaciers to the rocky pinnacles, from the silent valleys of the backcountry to the slopes and meadows near the village, all the beauty and majesty of the mountains can be yours for the taking. Okay, so what's the other ecosystem? The other ecosystem is Disney's Wilderness Lodge in Orlando, Florida. (laughs) Wait, really? (laughs) Really? Just a short ride across the water from Magic Kingdom Park, discover a timeless escape steeped in the majesty of America's great Northwest. Inspired by turn-of-the-century lodgings from the national parks, it's Disney's Wilderness Lodge, a deluxe resort destination. As your stay begins, towering totem poles and a roaring fireplace welcome you to kick back and relax, all while the sparkling backdrop of Bay Lake takes your breath away. (laughs) And when the time comes to cool off, Follow the bubbling spring as it flows into a waterfall and plunges into Silver Creek Springs Pool. Or oh my God! Dip your toes into our whirlpool That's on another level. No matter where your Walt Disney Can you hear me blinking? Disney's <laughs> Wilderness Lodge awaits your arrival. That's f***ed. Um. Okay, yeah, so that's I'm... a really funny conception of wilderness. <laughs> It's a five-star, all-inclusive wilderness resort. That's... I'm sorry, <laughs> Disney, don't sue us. Yeah. I mean, like, as someone who's, like, under no illusions that basically any of the outdoor experiences I have are not, you know, in some way curated or at least created by human intervention at some point in time, that's just on another level. Oh my goodness. So I remember I so I had to go on a day visit and stay in a crappy motor lodge hotel in Orlando. But just visiting it was surreal as you walk up and you walking up and seeing these um I think they were sequoias. And they were not very happy sequoias because they were growing in an ecosystem that was very unsequoia friendly. And then there was this sort of concierge area that you get with a lot of big hotels, you know, where the vehicles pull in and there's a covered area. And you have the staff from the hotel that are greeting guests and helping them with their luggage and so on. But they were dressed up in kind of ranger uniforms, park ranger uniforms. And so I'm thinking, oh, well, this is just ridiculous. You know, this is sort of over the top and kind of silly. And I wanted to, it was easy for me to suspend belief. May I take your bags? You walk in, um, it was sort of hot and humid in Orlando. 
So, you know, you're in this sort of tropical or semi-tropical environment, and um, I'm not used to that being Canadian, and sort of super hot. And then these sliding glass doors parted, and you walked inside to this dry, cool, air-conditioned environment. And the lobby is breathtaking because it goes up eight stories. It's large atrium, and it's all designed to reflect a kind of iconic National Park Lodge. So big timbers, and a massive fireplace, and all of this. So this is all playing on one's imagination, right, and a sense of what it is that um, is meaningful uh, around this experience. So again, I'm suspending judgment because I need to be the critic. I need to be cynical, in a sense, about this. But we spent several hours there, and it was only when we went left the hotel again and walked down to there's a lake right adjacent to the hotel and we walk down to the lake shore of the lake it's now evening and the sun is set and looked back turned over looked back toward the hotel and the illusion began to become more prominent for me and that I was starting to register it. it was starting to become normal for me that this was in fact this grand illusion of being a wilderness area it was, I remember it being just almost like the experience, you know, sort of a sensation of vertigo where I was being fooled and I knew I was being fooled and yet somehow it was coming real for me. It was becoming meaningful in a different way. Yeah, every, everything about that is just uncanny. And uh, for for the big reveal, it just so happens that I, too, have been to the Wilderness Lodge. You mentioned that. You were there as a kid, right? You're, you're kidding me. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> Who are you? Yeah, well, there's a lot of things that you don't know about me, Mendel. It really is a small world, after all. <laughs> oh, God. So when I was young, my, my dad actually worked for Walt Disney as an Imagineer. Wow. And so I spent an obscene amount of time at Disney attractions when I was a kid. And the Wilderness Lodge is exactly as Eric describes it. It's in the middle of a Florida swamp and they've planted giant sequoias, actually kind of like Oliver. (laughs) Exactly like Oliver. (laughs) Yeah. And they even built a geyser, which conveniently goes off every hour on the hour. You're f***ing with me. No. And the lodge is, uh, the story is it's built on a spring, which runs through this kind of like rocky creek channel with like painted concrete into a pool. Wait, 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 wait. Back up to the geyser. <laughs> There's a what story about the geyser. the geyser? <laughs> Apparently it took the technicians a really long time to figure out how to make a naturalistic looking geyser. Yeah, that's a ton of pressure. Yeah, yeah, the fire rock geyser. Uh, apparently, they hired an engineering firm to design a geyser because one of when they did their their interviews and their focus groups and their visits, they did exhaustive research on what you need to do to create a national park sensation, and you had to have a geyser because Old Faithful was the number one icon of wilderness, right? And so they had to have a geyser. And I don't know the the substance of this story, but um, it it has to be apocryphal if nothing else that. Apparently, the first company that was hired, you know, you don't just go into the yellow pages and pick out geyser design companies. So, you know, it was like, I don't know, they hired an engineering firm 
and they sort of the story goes that Michael Eisner, who was CEO of Disney, you know, proudly pushed the button ceremonially to turn on the geyser, and it looked like a garden hose that shot 100 feet in the air. Just was not very convincing. So they were fired. But I, it's so going to be too expensive for us to fact check all of this. But yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know this truth of the story, but it's a good one anyway. And so they had to bring in another company that did very sophisticated hydraulic engineering to figure out how to get the mist in this sort of super saturated, humid environment because the magic of Old Faithful in many ways is the heat against that dry air, right? The water vapor against the dry air, but that doesn't happen in Florida. So how do you do it? So they had to do it with, you know, robotics and fancy irrigation systems and special nozzles and jets and timing. And of course, it's it runs on clockwork because it is clockwork. And when you go inside, there's these massive totem poles. Rough. And this fireplace that actually has the stratigraphy of the Grand Canyon etched into it up like floor after floor of the building. So it really does feel uncanny. Like you're in Yellowstone and in the Sierra Nevadas and like in Haida Gwaii all at the same time. But you're really in a swamp in Florida. Yeah. And it's bricolage too in the finest sense of that term of being able to pull all these different elements and glue them together in ways that are kind of inconsistent if you think about them rationally. But as an impression, they start to make sense. And because it's Disney and this is America, um, it's all wrapped up in this kind of frontier nostalgia, sort of like G-rated version of like intrepid pioneers and noble savages and manifest destiny. People just want the fantasy, right? Yeah, the fantasy sells. And Eric Eric uses this funny word for the Wilderness Lodge. He calls it a simulacrum. Simulacrum. Uh, a simulacrum? Yes, right. A reproduction with no true original. So a simulacrum is like a, a recreation of something that never even existed in the first place. Exactly. And and in this one word, with this like very extreme example we're talking about, Eric encapsulates a lot of my greatest fears when it comes to ecological restoration. Because does it have a true original? Probably not, but it's been reproduced a lot. Like you're worried that in trying to help an ecosystem recover, to with the best intentions that you're coming at that with some kind of preconception of what that recovery looks like and you might be basing that idea off of this disnified understanding of the past or or how ecosystems even looked in the first place or if your motivations are skewed then you might end up creating what did you call it a a freakosystem yeah, Eric's daughter Lyra coined the phrase "freakosystem." So, <laughs> shout out to Lyra. Hey, shout out Lyra. So you might create a kind of freakosystem that is sort of in its own little bubble out of time. It, it doesn't resemble any past or present reference ecosystem, and it may or may not be resilient to change in the future. Yeah, and like that's exactly what the Wilderness Lodge is, right? It's like it's somebody's idea of quote-unquote wilderness but like trapped in amber or in this case like painted concrete right Mm. and you know a lot of people visit the wilderness lodge every year probably just as many as most national parks so when eric and his co-author jennifer cypher wrote about the wilderness lodge originally 
they were worried about people learning about nature through Disney and through a contrived experience like this wilderness-themed hotel, as opposed to through direct experience with nature. Mm. And they called this colonizing the imagination. Yeah, that was the that was the title of an article that we wrote called Colonizing the Imagination. And that was the process by which we presumed led to this view that we were going to learn about nature through artifice and not the other way around. And so our worry back in the 90s seems kind of naive maybe now, but we're going to get people referring to the wild through a contrived experience, through a built experience, more than through an authentic experience. Yeah, I think that's a totally valid concern. Although, I mean, the cat is kind of out of the bag at this point, right? Like, when most people think about sharks, they think Jaws. Or, or Baby Shark. That's not even a relevant reference anymore. <laughs> is it not? No. <laughs> no, those kids are grown, man. There's there's just so much layered popular culture and interpretations of interpretations of interpretations of nature. How many of us really can have a direct experience at this point? Right. And like you said previously, like, what is a direct experience with nature mm. in, a, in a world where humans have transformed just about every aspect of the natural world? Yeah. What What is the real thing that we should that we're being told we want at this point. And this is why Eric juxtaposed the Wilderness Lodge with his experiences doing research in Jasper. Mm. Because the closer he looked in Jasper, the more he realized that there's nothing pristine about even this national park in the Canadian Rockies. Mm. It has railroads and a highway cut through it. The meeting place of the Fur Brigades has become the meeting place of transcontinental trains. The village of Jasper. Goal of visitors from all over the world. And the bottomlands have been farmed and logged, and fire was suppressed for most of the last century, and the previous indigenous residents have been largely excluded. The 65-foot totem pole beside the railway station is a link with the Canadian past, a past that never seems very far away. So in many ways, you could argue that the experience of a prestigious national park like Jasper is every bit as pre-manufactured as the experience of the Wilderness Lodge. Just a little different. In some ways, Jasper is also pretending to be this kind of ahistoric idea of wilderness. Like the roots of these mighty trees, ancient trails spread throughout this wild land. By the way, our friends over at the Outside In podcast just did a fantastic deep dive episode called Fortress Conservation on this topic. Their focus is on Yellowstone, but the story is very much the same. The concept of wilderness is a fabrication of an industrial society, originally set aside primarily for the upper class. Not so much a case of life imitating art, imitating life, but more like just the ideology of settler colonialism is just written on the landscape in different ways and and seeping into every outdoor experience. Like wilderness doesn't actually exist, but both Disney and Parks Canada know that it definitely sells. (laughs) That's, That's true. And there's actually a fantastic essay about this that we can link to in the show notes by environmental historian William Cronin. It's called The Trouble with Wilderness. And I just want to read a short passage from it. 
The dream of an unworked natural landscape is very much the fantasy of people who have never themselves had to work the land to make a living. Urban folk for whom food comes from a supermarket or a restaurant instead of a field, and for whom the wooden houses in which they live and work apparently have no meaningful connection to the forests in which trees grow and die. Only people whose relation to the land was already alienated could hold up wilderness as a model for human life and nature. It's sort of it's sort of held as being in balance with living in the city that that work hard, play hard. You 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 do your thing in the the urban noise and in the in the polluted sphere, and then you you go as deep and as far as absolutely possible to get away from it all and to express being out in nature and communing with nature, but it has nothing to do with actually living there. It's just about getting there. Yeah. But that's just it. We don't have to hold something up as this quote-unquote wilderness for it to be wild. Jasper, in many ways, is still very wild. It's got intact predator-prey ecologies. It's got areas that are, you know, what I would call tenacious ecologies that Mm. resist human incursion. And so, according to Eric, it's actually this state of wildness that we should be trying to achieve with ecological restoration. Wildness instead of wilderness. Wilderness being the, you know, the sort of, oh, well, William Cronin did such a great job of kind of articulating this idea of wilderness and sort of pulling it apart a bit as this cultural idea that we really probably ought not hold on to too much. But wildness in comparison is this notion of things that are exuberant and free-flowing. There it is again, exuberant. And also free-flowing. I heard Eric use the term free-flowing a number of times. And neither of those are really scientific terms, right? It's that kind of wildness, whether in ourselves or whether, you know, in ecosystems. But I think they capture what Oliver was talking about with his open-source landscapes, where these unique interactions and relationships can develop and evolve without being mediated or even premeditated by some designer. Yeah, there are zones of, of experimentation. There's sort of emergent zones where people can kind of reconfigure their relationships with each other and with, with the, uh, no, the non-human subject, like plants, uh, other, other organisms, and renegotiate our, um, our relationships and, uh, in a way that's experimental and, and creative. So uh, there's very few places in, in life where we can actually do that. So if I had to articulate a shared thread between Eric and Oliver, it's that we shouldn't necessarily be trying to create something that looks or, or feels like wilderness or even like a historical ecosystem necessarily, right? Instead, we should be trying to catalyze these kinds of beneficial interactions that can evolve towards a resilient ecosystem, whether that's a forest or a garden or a salt marsh. So this, the reason I wrote about that, I mean, I went off on this long, strange jag about the Wilderness Lodge at the beginning of Nature by Design, was to talk about a tale of two wildernesses, right? to talk about the experience that I was having living at the time in Jasper National Park and then visiting the Wilderness Lodge and trying to bring those two together in some conceptual way in relation to restoration. And my worry was that in a technological society, we are going to become better at artifice than... Um, let's call it free-flowing natural process. And so how do you do restoration in a way that allows free-flowing natural process and still embeds this, you know, human creativity, 
So it's still a kind of like a conversation or a dance with ecosystems that we're engaged with as restorationists, but it's, but we are still preeminently allowing the natural process to flow. I feel excited, hopeful, exuberant, exuberant, and, you know, a little lost. I always feel a little bit that way after talking to Oliver and Eric. Like, my compass needle has started just, like, spinning in circles. Where am I? What What do you take away from our little tour of the boundaries of restoration? <laughs> you know, like, the, we should strive to only create audacious ecologies where they already exist, right? Like audacious ecologies should should no longer creep into the tenacious ecologies and into the cherished ecologies, right? Like yeah, places where our human impact has already been felt intensely. Yeah. And that are therefore kind of ours. We own we, we own them to a certain extent now, not in the like traditional mm-hmm. sense of ownership, but in like the sense of like We have a responsibility to them. Our guiding aspiration should be to just continuously reform and reimagine these audacious ecologies and and see what springs up, right? And then the tricky part is like, does that include Jasper? It definitely includes Jasper. Interesting. Or rather it includes parts of Jasper. Hey. Because Jasper is actually an incredible mix of cherished, tenacious, and audacious ecologies, which is, I think, a lot what our future ecologies look like. But before you get too (laughs) starry-eyed... I have just a couple closing thoughts from Eric about how to act responsibly if and when we intervene in ecosystems. That's exactly what I'm looking for. That's what I'm missing here. One of the hallmarks of restoration practice generally is about being clear about the goals that you have in mind for a project. Gosh, I sound um, old-timey when I say this, but back in the old days, right, of restoration, I think there, one of the big challenges was um, having lots of conflicting ideas about what you were doing. So the goals weren't so clear um, in some ways. It was always about, it was always cached in terms of, oh yeah, it's about historical reference systems, about getting back to pre-degraded states. And yet there were all sorts of other ideas at play that were influencing restoration decisions. They just, they just weren't explicit. So the cards were not always out on the table. So I think the one thing that seems to work with restoration is being pretty clear about what you're trying to do. And this process of articulating explicit goals, it does make us, for better or worse, designers, in a sense. I use design as a prominent metaphor to talk about restoration because I, I wanted to emphasize that intentional human agency in restoration, that we do make choices all the time. You've got that sort of sense of human agency. And when we think about the values that drive our work, they're very often conditioned by particular institutional or um, wider cultural ideas that circulate and inform what we do, like why we decide to do what we do. 
And so my sense is rather than bury that, you bring it forward and say, huh, restoration is about design. Fundamentally, it's about design. And we need to lift ourselves up to understand, well, what does it mean to be a designer with and alongside ecosystems? What does that look like? How do we, how do we make sense of that? That makes perfect sense to me as, as an artist and as a designer, which, you know, there's, there's always that creative leeway built in there. But don't some of these ideas come off as kind of heretical if you're positioned, say, as a restorationist who is firmly grounded in science and data? Yeah, yeah. These ideas are a little bit heretical for restorationists. And I, I hope that people realize that when we're being explicit about our goals in this design process, that these designs are grounded in a scientific understanding of ecosystems and ecological processes. I think Eric has at times been made into a bit of a straw man because he's willing to point out the obvious, that it's impossible not to be influenced by other cultural factors and ideas. So it's better to just be explicit about what those ideas are so that you can kind of interrogate them and decide how to proceed, right? Like I grew up going to Disney world attractions as a kid (laughs) and those places are embedded in my subconscious and so every time i'm thinking about ecosystems i have to interrogate that part of myself that's like you have these aesthetics you have these ideas of what's natural and you have to think about like what's actually driving you you have to be very clear about your goals you know yeah and you just have to have faith that part of your ability is to reflect and to to actually gain some insight about your less conscious thought processes. Yeah, which in some ways makes you an artist too, right? Mm. And I think coming back to that subject, we, we just can't afford not to consider aesthetics in the design process if we're designers with natural ecosystems. If you look at the restoration literature, you'll find very few explicit references to aesthetics. And it's we sort it's it's like a it's it's a zone where we're not comfortable going. We don't want to talk about the idea that in restoration there are aesthetic preferences, but we know that there are, and it just is part of that intentionality that is at the center of restoration. That we are people acting as you know as agents in this landscape, and we're trying to um, if we do our work well. We are carefully attending to these ecosystems. We're listening to them. We're studying them. Listen, I use that meta- metaphorically, but you know, we're trying to be really careful and observing and understanding what these ecosystems are, and then trying to respect that. Maybe I'll finish with a, a story that um, I take away from Bob Dorney, Robert Dorney. Back in his little miniature ecosystem in his front yard in Waterloo, Ontario, he, um, his neighbors are really upset because he actually had some weeds in there that were on the weed bylaw control list in the city of Waterloo. So these were plants that you shouldn't be growing. And so neighbors, a couple of neighbors were trying to get petitioned to have this little miniature ecosystem taken up by the city, destroyed. And so it was Dorney's um, partner um, who said, you know, people like formalism. They like structure. So why don't you put up a little like 
brick wall or something, a stone wall between the sidewalk and your miniature ecosystem. Give it that kind of formality, and I bet people will settle down. Sure enough, they did. Accept it. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, that's and that's about stuff. durability, right? So you have, and so a, a lot of it involves, so I think a lot of what restoration can do well is to engage people in conversation about what it is that they are um, valuing, experiencing, and not necessarily to fully give into that, right? Not to say, oh yeah, it's all about people, right? And our values and what we want, because that's clearly not what restoration is is offering. It's offering our a powerful argument in some ways against that. It's saying, hey, there's this other than human world that's really important and it's doing something very different and more complex than we can ever really fully understand. And our oblig obligation as restoration is, is to allow that to flourish. That's really, uh, maybe that's finally what restoration is, is most significantly about, is challenging us to understand what the world is about. Yeah, that's everything to me. I thought you'd like that. <laughs> yeah, I feel, you know, simultaneously exuberant and very cautious about even so much as planting a tree in my backyard, let alone a tree, a tomato. As you should. Like, can I even muster the audacity? Are you making fun of me? Yes. <laughs> You said that audacious ecosystems are the ones we create intentionally or accidentally. I feel like we've covered the intentional side, but what about the ecosystems we create by accident? Well, Eric calls them novel ecosystems, and Oliver calls them hyperecologies, and I've got one more episode lined up in this series, so we'll pick up the thread next time in part three of our series, Nature by Design. Thanks for listening. This has been an independent production of Future Ecologies. This episode was produced by myself, Adam Huggins. And me, Mendel Skolsky. In this episode, you heard Dr. Eric Higgs and Oliver Kellhammer. Oliver teaches at the Parsons School of Design at the New School in New York, and you can learn about his many projects at oliverk.org. Eric teaches at the University of Victoria, and is the author of several books, including Nature by Design, People, Natural Processes, and Ecological Restoration. You can learn more about his work at erichiggs.ca. Also, an extra special shout out this episode to Eric's co-author, Jennifer Seifer, whose work on the Wilderness Lodge inspired this episode, and also gave me permission to compose this silly music and reminisce about my childhood in the perennially disappointing state of Florida. We'll be back next month. Please rate and review Future Ecologies wherever podcasts can be found. Special thanks to Hannah Rossler, Sadie Couture, Todd Howard, Brea Seger, Ilana Fenerev, Bastian Falan, Maya Govan, Nicole Yaris, and Jody Baker. Music for this episode was provided by Scott Gailey, C. Diab, Hidden Sky, and Sunfish Moonlight. If you like what we do, please share us with your friends. You can also support us on Patreon. Our patrons get access to special mini-episodes, interview segments, stickers, patches, and a Discord server. You can support us, starting at just $1 a month, by going to patreon.com slash futureecologies. 
And as of this episode, we have passed the 100 patron threshold. So thank you all so much for supporting us. You know who you are. You can get in touch with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and iNaturalist. The handle is always Future Ecologies. You can find a full list of musical credits, citations, show notes, links, and now transcriptions on our website, futureecologies.net. Okay, that's it. Bye for now. See you next time. change in the immortal words of baby huey a change is gonna come you ever listen baby huey classic classic talk about posthumous albums that's a posthumous album it's a banger let's do it next you know what i'm talking about oh my god oh soul hits (laughs) all-time soul hits you're a tangent machine Uh, (laughs) tangent machine Okay, okay, let's let's do this for real.